Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and your source for all the latest news and information related to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. This is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the experience of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, while better educating the public on psychiatric illness. And welcome back, folks. This is the Wednesday, December the 4th edition of Psychiatry Today. And uh, by now, I hope that you've recovered from whatever excesses you may have suffered during the Thanksgiving holiday, whether that's eating too much or shopping too much or both, and hopefully not too stressed out by what happened during that time. And uh, as always, I welcome your questions, your comments about this show, as well as your concerns about mental health-related issues. If you have a specific question about your mental health, and uh, that would include someone close to you as well, if you have a question about a problem someone close to you is having, you've tried to get help for yourself or them and it hasn't gone well or you still have questions, I would welcome being a resource for you so you can send me your questions regarding those matters or comments or suggestions about anything that I've discussed on the show previously. Send them to me via email and that email address is Dr. Scott spelled D-R-S-C-O-T at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. And you have my assurances that all information will be kept strictly confidential, so no worries about sending in your questions, your comments. I won't reveal anything on the air that would be even remotely identifiable as to the source of the question. Now, first up on tonight's show, looking at what's really the biggest story in terms of mental health treatment uh, since we last got together, uh, doesn't have to do with research onto mental illness or new potential treatments, but nonetheless, this is a huge story, and that is that Research on developing new mental health-related drugs has tremendously slowed as investment in this area completely shrinks, no pun intended. And this is a major story because it's in slowing the development of potential new treatments, we are stuck with the medications and that we have to treat mental illness. And we know from extensive research on them as a whole that we fail to achieve remission from psychiatric illness a good bit of the time. Uh, in fact, uh, only about um, a third of patients go into remission from their psychiatric symptoms on their first trial of medication. But research into new medications 
to treat mental health disorders, which affect almost a quarter of the United States population, has slowed as the major pharmaceutical companies cut back investment in this area. The companies seem to have concluded that developing new psychiatric drugs is too risky and too expensive. This comes as uh, this pullback comes after a series of failures in clinical trials that evaluated antidepressants and antipsychotic medications. The companies put a great deal of time and money into developing these products, and then as they get closer to the later stages of testing, the clinical trials fail. All that time and money is wasted. And this happens often enough, and the companies say, hey, you know what, uh, we're going to concentrate our drug development resources in other therapeutic areas that are not as risky and may lead to better profits faster. In one recent case, a new treatment for schizophrenia from Eli Lilly was scrapped after it failed a phase three clinical trial leaving the company with a huge loss on the millions it had already invested. It got pretty close to coming on the market. Phase 4 testing is the last step before something gets submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. It's been nearly a decade since the last big blockbuster drug, also from Eli Lilly, it's their antidepressant Cymbalta, that came out in 2004. And so it's almost been 10 years since that hit the market. And by the way, it's, a, it's a, available as a generic starting this month. And that was more than a decade after the previous big blockbuster psychiatric drug that was Effexor, which came from Wyeth. Now, the decline in spending on research into mental health-related drugs was apparent at the 2011 conference of the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics, where just 13 of the 300 presentations were related to pharmaceutical in interventions, and none of them involved a new psychiatric drug. That's pretty scary for our field. There is very little in the pipeline, and eventually we have to rely on what's available, and what is available is essentially what are called Me Too drugs. That is to say, if anything is new and being developed, um, the mechanism of action of the drug does not differ substantially from what's already on the market. <clears throat> now, the medications that we have basically share the same mode of action. Uh, no matter how old the drugs are, some of them go back as far as the 1950s, although the newer ones certainly may be more effective and certainly have fewer side effects than the older ones. The drop in research and development investment has been very significant, and it has to be at least half of what has been invested 10 to 15 years ago. Laboratories often prefer to invest in other medical therapeutic areas, such as cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, for which biological targets are well-defined and easier to study compared to 
mental health issues. Now, given that it takes about a billion dollars to develop a new drug, many companies view that as a huge gamble. And if they see that with the brain being so complicated to work on, uh, and they see multiple companies failing to get their potential psychiatric drugs uh, past the initial phases of testing and many millions of dollars going down the drain as a result, uh, this is why they're pulling back from that area and going for the sure thing with these other disease states. Psychiatric illness is generally more likely to be a disorder of both neurochemistry and circuits, as well as complicated gene and environmental interactions, and therefore it is harder from a scientific standpoint to study these disorders and to develop new treatments for them compared to some of these other disease states. New techniques in neuroscience have emerged in recent decades that allow for a better genetic understanding of psychiatric disease accompanied by new imaging advances that show a range of abnormalities in the brain. But despite these strides, these techniques remain relatively new. So it's a challenge for the pharmaceutical industry. That's why they have in part backed away from the work of taking care of those illnesses. The five major pharmaceutical companies were asked for comment on this story by the authors of this article that I'm reviewing with you, and those included Merck, Pfizer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Sanofi, and GlaxoSmithKline, just to give you a little bit of identifying information about those. Uh, Merck gives us Safras in psychiatry. They have a sleep medication that may be uh, coming to market soon, but there were issues with the dosing and side effects. Pfizer originally brought us Zoloft, more recently uh, Pristique, which really was Wyeth's product, but Pfizer acquired Wyeth. Bristol-Myers Squibb in the past brought us Surzone, and I'm sure you're all well acquainted with Abilify from the ubiquitous commercials on TV. <coughs> Sanofi uh, has brought us Ambien and Ambien CR, and GlaxoSmithKline has brought us Welbutrin for depression and smoking cessation and Lamictal for bipolar disorder. Now, only Merck responded out of all those huge pharma companies. And uh, the spokesperson said, as we are doing very little in this area, we respectfully decline to participate. Merck is now focusing on Alzheimer's disease. So really the only company who answered pretty much gave a non-answer. And uh, But even what they did say is very telling. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is something that several of the big pharma companies are focusing on, including Lilly and Pfizer. And uh, this is seen as uh, an illness that is exploding in prevalence as the baby boomer population ages. And any company that comes up with a viable treatment for it is assured of a blockbuster hit in terms of profits. Now, the, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health uh, states that uh, their annual budget at $1.4 billion, that's 
grossly inadequate in terms of being able to pick up the slack uh, left over from the drug firms not doing their part in terms of research into new medications. And lack of new medications is a huge problem. We are left in the position of being able to say to somebody, we don't have anything else. This is all we've got in terms of treatments and medications. Experts still have hope based on the project launched by the president to unravel the mysteries of the brain, the brain research through advancing innovative neurotechnologies set aside $100 million in investment in its first year by a host of federal agencies, but even that will have a long way to go to make up for the lack of research and investment by big pharmaceutical companies. We're going to take a commercial break here. We'll be right back with more on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here on America's Web Radio, your psychiatrist, giving you all the latest mental health-related news. And next up on tonight's show, the idea of taking antidepressants during pregnancy has been very controversial because of a lot of contradictory research coming out saying, hey, the risks of antidepressants in pregnancy are not so bad for the fetus uh, versus, well, they can cause these problems. And back and forth the issue goes, uh, also including the idea that untreated maternal depression is very serious, a problem for the developing fetus, perhaps even more so than the medications. So this next study seems very reassuring. The next one we're going to talk to you about and definitely caught my eye because of this ongoing controversy. And the conclusions are that taking antidepressants during pregnancy may not raise autism risk as was once thought. Children of mothers who take a widely used class of antidepressants during pregnancy are not at increased risk for autism according to a large new study. Autism, which is a neurodevelopmental disorder, 
that affects communication and social skills is estimated to affect about 1 in 88 children in the United States. Previous research has suggested that women who take antidepressants during pregnancy are up to five times more likely to have children with autism. This study focused on antidepressants called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, this includes Prozac, which uh, is known as the generic fluoxetine, Paxil, which is known as the generic paroxetine, Luvox, which is known as the generic fluvoxamine, Sertraline, uh, the brand name of Zoloft, and then Celexa and Lexapro, which are related. Celexa is citalopram and Lexapro is escitalopram. Now, the researchers looked at more than 600,000 Danish children born between 1996 and 2006. Uh, this is research that looks very reliable because of the long period of time of the study, a full decade, and not only that, 600,000 kids. That's a very large uh, pool of subjects. And for those of you who are not familiar with this type of thing in uh, Scandinavian countries and other countries in that area, they have very extensive and detailed birth registries, so it's very easy to accumulate a wealth of medical research information because uh, there's so much available to you. Initial results showed an almost 2% risk of having a child with autism for pregnant women who took SSRIs during their pregnancy compared with 1.5% for those who did not. But after analyzing mental health diagnoses among the children's siblings and parents, the researchers concluded that the risk of autism associated with SSRIs was minimal. This finding was published recently in the journal Clinical Epidemiology. More and more women are given antidepressant medication while they are pregnant, and an increasing number of children are diagnosed with autism. This has given rise to concern over a possible connection. Now, in contrast to other smaller studies, this survey cannot demonstrate that the risk of having a child with autism is increased by taking antidepressant medication during pregnancy. And the key is the larger the study, the longer the period of time under study, the better information you're going to get. The researchers noted that there may be other risks associated with taking antidepressants during pregnancy, and women should talk to their doctor if they are taking any type of medication and are thinking about becoming pregnant. Very good advice. Think about it and have that conversation with your doctor before the fact not after the fact. Now, moving on to another disturbing yet still significant and major mental health-related story. Uh, a report came out on the Newtown massacre where uh, young Adam Lanza uh, shot and killed several students and teachers at, a, at his former elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, the report renews the focus on the role of Lanza's mother 
And there was a lot of controversy as this report came out as to how much, if any, blame for what happened should be assigned to her. So let's take a look at this issue. As Adam Lanza withdrew from the world into his bedroom, the only person he appeared to be close to was his mother, who cooked his favorite meals, did his laundry daily, and bonded with him over shooting and guns. Investigators' final report on last year's school massacre in Newtown provided new insights into his mother Nancy Lanza's home life with her troubled adult son and renewed the debate over whether she bears any responsibility for the bloodbath that began with her shooting death. Governor of Connecticut Daniel P. Malloy was quoted as saying, I think that we will always be bewildered by someone who did express her concern for her son, why she sought to have him engage with firearms. Not even those folks who oppose reasonable gun safety legislation would argue that it was a good idea to have someone who was evidencing this kind of disturbance have possession of the kinds of weapons that he had possession of. Adam Lanza's fascination with violence was apparent to teachers and other acquaintances, investigators said in their report. He collected materials on mass killings and kept a spreadsheet ranking of mass murders. But his mother wasn't allowed to enter his bedroom, according to the report, and it was unclear how much she knew about his obsession. While the details released Monday led some observers to direct their anger at her, suggesting she was more enabler than victim, others were more sympathetic. James Allen Fox, a criminologist at Northeastern University in Boston, said Nancy Lanza didn't ignore her son's psychological problems and can't be blamed for his actions. He said she was a victim, not an accessory. We can easily second-guess parents, and there's a lot there we can question. But the fact of the matter is many people commit horrible crimes despite the best efforts of parents, siblings, and others. Adam Lanza, who was 20, shot his mother in the head four times last December the 14th, then drove to Sandy Hook Elementary School where he killed 20 first graders and six teachers and administrators with a semi-automatic rifle. He committed suicide as police arrived. The report detailed some of the family's efforts to address the needs of a young man described as withdrawn, lacking an appreciation of others' feelings, and beset with significant mental health issues. He had evaluations of many types over the years. He was homeschooled for a period because he did not like the noise at Newtown High School, and he refused medications and behavior therapies that were suggested for him. Some parents of other troubled young adults said they can understand what Nancy Lanza was going through. <clears throat> One such parent was quoted for this article 
a special education teacher herself in Virginia, said it was like the wild, wild west as she tried to find the right treatment for her 18-year-old daughter who has an anxiety disorder and has attempted suicide several times. If, if she, she said, if your child does not have certain symptoms, you can get passed around by the system. She, she said, I feel empathy for his mom just because, like I said, you try to find the services, and when they're not available, you try to do what you have to do to help your kids. Just because your son committed that horrible act doesn't mean she was a horrible mother. Nancy Lanza was divorced from Adam's father, indicated that she did not work because of her son's condition. In their spacious Newtown home, she catered to his requests, cooking to his specifications and getting rid of a cat because he did not want it in the house. In the weeks before the massacre, she said her son hadn't gone anywhere in three months and that they would communicate only by email even though they lived under the same roof. Clearly, his behavior was increasingly bizarre, and she was powerless to get anything done about it, as he would refuse both behavior therapy and medication. She often took her son shooting at a gun range, however. She legally purchased all the weapons her son carried the day of the massacre, and she had written a check to buy him a pistol for Christmas. The report said that she was concerned about her son, but that she never expressed fear that she or anyone else was in danger from him. He was never violent or threatening toward others before the attack, according to the report. Now, the, uh, the uh, father here, Peter Lanza, again, the divorced uh, father, um, declined a request for comment on the story. It's hard to know what we can take from this. Uh, one thing is, while certainly it can be understood that the parent of a mentally ill adult child who either refuses treatment uh, or for whom the system has not uh, been able to allow access to treatment, you know, that certainly can be understood and sympathized with. But it's hard to understand how... Uh, while she may have had no other choice but to indulge uh, bizarre things like having no contact except via email, very detailed and specific dietary restrictions, and so on, how is it that she indulged his interest in guns in such a major way by allowing him to accumulate this arsenal? Uh, it seems pretty clear that we'll never understand that, but I think that's the thing that we all have such a hard time understanding, and uh, that's clearly what led to such a horrible loss of life at the time. We're going to take another commercial break, and we'll be back with more mental health-related news. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. 
At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They are located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back here at Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. One of the topics I strive to pay close attention to is coping with workplace-related stress. And so I came across this article, comes to us from U.S. News World Report. And it says these are the best cures for work-related stress, so I thought I would review this with you. Forget misfit teenagers or a rocky romantic life. The responsibilities of work are filling up the majority of space in the stress vacuum. That's according to a 2013 Consumer Health Mindset report. And of the 2,800 employees... In their dependents surveyed, four of the top five reasons for stress were work-related, financial situation, work changes, work schedule, work relationships, and influence and control over how the employee did work. Stress has both emotional and physical consequences. Stress is a condition we experience when our minds and bodies respond to changing conditions. Too much stress creates excessive fear and anxiety, conflict and defensiveness, feelings of being overwhelmed and burned out, and chronic inflammation in the body. Now, if you're already in a demanding job, laboring under such conditions can only make it that much harder. Here are some issues you may face, as well as steps you can take to alleviate some of your workplace stress. Others feeling your wrath. If you're bogged down in heaps of work each day, you may show little restraint in voicing your frustrations with colleagues. While the tongue lashing of your boss and colleagues may provide some momentary relief, It can create a hostile and distrustful work environment. This can affect relationships with coworkers in that we can snap at them more often, be more short-tempered, 
relate to them in a less positive way, which can create more stress, not just for us and them, but that can permeate the workplace. So what is the cure? Well, for one thing, blow off steam by exercising. Let your frustrations boil out during your lunch workout in the company gym. If your workplace doesn't have a gym, walking up and down the office stairs or around a nearby park outside for 15 minutes are great substitutes. Those who exercise regularly are less reactive to stress when they experience it. Doing so unleashes an influx of endorphins and makes you more resilient to stress. Now, if you're unfortunate enough to be working where there is no break at all during the day, if you're going out with several co-workers and you're brainstorming about work, it may be more acceptable for your boss for a bunch of you to go outside and take a break, especially if, as is most likely the case, you all come back in uh, more energized and uh, better prepared to be focused and productive. Speaking of focusing, that's the next problem, focusing being a struggle. Between fretting about your low salary and the high demands of your boss, your body may be overwhelmed by the emotional toll and release cortisol, a hormone unleashed as a result of stress. Cortisol can inhibit logical reasoning, reaction time, and other areas of cognitive functioning. And the proposed cure for this? Meditate. Give your brain a break from the multitasking nature of your job by stepping away from your desk and finding a private area for a few minutes of meditation. Meditation is one of the most effective ways to relieve stress. And contrary to what some people think, it doesn't involve sitting cross-legged on a carpet and chanting. It's just taking a few minutes to force us to stop, sit quietly within ourselves, and identify the sources of our excessive stress. and focuses us on calming ourselves down, living in the moment, not hijacked by the past or worrying about the future. And we also know there's evidence that meditation can benefit your brain, from previous research, in 2011, a team of Harvard-affiliated researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital conducted an eight-week mindfulness meditation program. Meditating for 27 minutes each day, the 16 participants showed measurable changes in parts of the brain associated with memory, sense of self, empathy, and stress. Now, here's another problem. Lunchtime means a fast food trip. That is, again, assuming there is a lunchtime altogether. Along with altering your ability to think, the release of cortisol can also make you crave calorie-rich, sugary foods. When we're stressed, we may not take care of our bodies nutritionally as well. We tend to crave sugary foods, junk foods, and things that will affect how sharp we're thinking under times of stress. 
So obviously, in this case, the cure is commit to a healthier diet. Come lunchtime, you may crave a meal loaded with calories if you're being frazzled. But making a conscious effort to cut down on unhealthy eating when stressed and then actively engaging in healthier stress relief habits can help break this cycle. Try reducing portions, snacking on nutritious options such as peanut butter and sliced apples, and also resolving to eat only healthy food and also only when hungry. And uh, eating only when hungry and thinking about it, uh, that's mindful eating. Another problem from work-related stress, sleep has become a chore. You may be spending your nights tossing and turning at the thought of what awaits you at the office the following day. As a result of this lack of sleep, your cognitive abilities aren't as sharp. Having fewer hours of rest can have an adverse effect on your memory and capacity to learn. The cure for this problem is fairly obvious. Get more rest. Easier said than done. On average, Americans sleep for 6 hours and 51 minutes on work days. This according to a National Sleep Foundation poll earlier this year. While the amount of sleep needed can differ from person to person, get 7 to 8 hours for the best work performance. We're less reactive to stress when we're rested. Being well-rested leads to greater energy and sharper thinking, which is critical for solving the more complex issues of your job. <clears throat> and lastly, the problem of actually feeling burnt out. If work stress is a constant part of your life, a more serious condition like burnout could be on the horizon. Work-related burnout can lead to feelings of despair and depression and leave your sense of meaning and purpose compromised. Now, in this situation, the recommended cure is to seek professional help. Consider seeing a therapist if you're at the tipping point, both physically and mentally, and trying to tackle your stress on your own seems overwhelming. Someone whose personality or upbringing is more vulnerable to stress because they don't see themselves as empowered may need more psychological help so they can start to understand how they can become more stress resilient. Now, the article doesn't discuss about seeing a professional for help with that is in many cases, it can be very difficult. Uh, there are some companies who have employee assistance programs, whereby calling a mental health-related hotline, you can get an appointment with a certified therapist, and you have X number of visits with that therapist for free to try to help resolve an acute mental health crisis or just to try to uh, resolve a situation where you're acutely stressed and get to a better place within six visits, sometimes more, usually no more than eight. And then after that, if you still feel you need more help, you would have to go through your medical benefits and hope that there is adequate insurance coverage for psychotherapy, which uh, there is not always the case. 
there are often lifetime and annual limits on visits for psychotherapy and much higher co-pays and deductibles compared to other medical care. This is somewhat being addressed by the mental health parity laws that were recently signed into law. However, it remains to be seen how the insurance companies will react to the new rules and, uh, in fact, whether it will make access to counseling uh, easier. Next up on tonight's show, another topic that I pay very close attention to is that of our soldiers and our veterans' mental health. Uh, But lately, while there's certainly been a lot of attention paid to uh, soldiers, both active and veteran soldiers' mental health, there's even been more attention paid to the mental health of their children. And I, I applaud this change uh, because, again, not enough attention is being paid to the mental health issues that families of those in the military face. Military life is extremely difficult on families. Spouses and children face incredible challenges and stresses uh, that non-military families uh, can only imagine. And it's about time more attention is being paid to their mental health issues. So this article talks about how military deployments uh, have been found to be connected with teens' depression. Adolescents who experience the deployment of a family member in the U.S. military may face an increased risk of depression, according to this new study. Ninth and 11th grade students in California public schools with two or more deployment experiences over the past decade were 56% more likely to feel sad or hopeless compared with their non-military family peers. The same kids were 34% more likely to have suicidal thoughts. We'll we'll go into more details on the study when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know skipping doses of medication can be dangerous? If you have a chronic medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure, it's important to take the medication prescribed by your physician. It is also important to remember that although you take a medicine to treat a condition, it is not a cure for the underlying medical condition. It is used to control it. For example, taking medication for diabetes will lower your blood sugar. However, if you stop taking the medication, the sugar will rise again. Changes in both diet and lifestyle, like adding exercise to your routine, are equally important. Working with your physician by following his or her recommendations is the key to controlling your disease and maintaining your health. Ask questions if you don't understand something. Taking control of your health is the key to wellness. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770 696 
800-259-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and we're talking about some research into how military deployments lead to teens' depression. Now, this study is one of very few that compares students from military families to their non-military peers. One of the goals of the research was to highlight kids' experiences which have been unintentionally ignored in the past. Past research in this area has mostly been conducted in clinical settings or at summer camps designed specifically for military families. Research was published in the Journal of Adolescent Health. Less than 1% of the United States population has been on active duty at any point in time since the attacks of September 11, 2001. That, according to the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C., kids in military families may feel isolated with so few peers who can share and understand their experiences. For this study, the researchers tacked on an extra questionnaire to a statewide survey administered every two years to public schools in California. The researchers chose to give the military questionnaire to eight public school districts in the southern part of the state. Nearly half of all respondents were Hispanic, followed by white, mixed race, Asian, and black. And students could complete the paper and pencil survey in English or Spanish. Of the 14,300 students surveyed, less than 14% reported having a connection with the military. For their deployment analysis, the researchers narrowed their focus to the 9th and 11th grades only, which included about 9,300 students from both military and non-military families. The researchers found that kids with a family member in the military had higher rates of depression, hopelessness, and suicidal thoughts than non-military peers. When they adjusted for a variety of factors, it turned out that the differences seemed to be largely driven by the number of deployments kids experienced. Comparing just the teens with military connections, they found those with one deployment in the family were 15% more likely to feel depressed than kids with no deployment experiences, and those with two or more deployments were 41% more likely to report symptoms of depression. There is the stress of being concerned and worried about the parent or sibling who has been deployed. While contact has improved drastically, you don't always know how well they are doing. Comparing the overall results to recent statistics for United States teens in general, 28.5% of teens report feeling sad or hopeless, while 33.7% of kids with a parent in the military and 35.3% with a sibling in the military reported sadness or hopelessness in this new study. 
they also found that 24.8% of kids with a parent in the military and 26.1% with a sibling in the military reported having had suicidal thoughts. That compares to a rate of about 15% in the general population of teens. The study collected data a little further away from the height of the wars. It shows us that these are persistent symptoms. Pediatricians and family doctors need to be aware of the risks this population faces because up to two-thirds of contact with children in military families is done in civilian doctors' offices. Non-military doctors, especially in states like California with a large military presence, can simply ask young patients if they live in a military family. Just asking simple questions leads to more questions and answers. Schools are taking these findings very seriously. Before the researchers approached school officials in order to collect data specific to military connectivity, few districts had numbers on how many students lived in military families. There are things that parents and school officials can do. For example, school officials in one Southern California district celebrated a school-wide event when a student's parent returned home. Other schools have conducted service events like collecting food for troops. Part of the experience of depression can be isolation. Kids need to be able to connect with one another and know that others feel the way they do. The researchers acknowledge several weaknesses with their current study. For example, the kids' self-reports of depression and suicidal thoughts were not cross-checked against another source such as physician records. Also, the study gathered data from a single point in time rather than following the subjects for a period of time to detect mental health fluctuations. An important finding from the study is that only deployments appear connected with increased sadness, suicidal thoughts, and depression, not the circumstance of merely living in a military family. This speaks to the resilience of military families. They are in a very unique culture in America. <clears throat> and I think that is also one of the most interesting findings in the study, the fact that rates of depression increase with increasing numbers of deployments. And this is in contrast with findings on research into depression and suicide in our soldiers themselves, where the numbers of deployments didn't seem to be a reliable factor in uh, elucidating the marked increase in the numbers of suicides in the military, especially in the Army. Uh, another interesting take-home point from the study is that it would seem that kids from military families would be uniquely able to support each other in dealing with the stress of having a parent or a sibling being deployed once or multiple times 
And uh, so perhaps one of the take-home messages from this would be to uh, find a way for the military to uh, reach out to families who have children and uh, set up some support groups or some support structure uh, for uh, kids who have parents or siblings who are deployed. <clears throat> and my own personal message to all of you listening to me telling you about this is that while it is important that uh, we support our troops, I think it's even more important that we support their families because much of the stress that our troops have, of course, has to do with being in uh, very dangerous, life-threatening situations, putting their lives on the line for us every moment of every single day. But as far as the impact mental health-wise of their military service, it's stress of what their family is dealing with back home. So in my opinion, if you want to really do the best to support our troops, support their families. Uh, find out what their spouses need help with. Volunteer to help. Uh, help out with their children. Give them some time for themselves by watching their children. Uh, do what you can to support the troops' families, and that will, I promise you, go a huge way towards supporting our troops themselves. <clears throat> All right, next up on tonight's show, very interesting research into the science of memory. Scientists interested in studying memory have long known that humans are poor recorders of life experience. We often implant a false memory in our own brains, remembering things that never happened, or at least recalling them differently. The darker side of human memory may be that we can't forget things. Scientists have looked into possibly someday deleting memories, allowing trauma victims and sufferers of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, to erase their troubled pasts and regain clarity. Experimenters routinely use mice in tests of memory. The differences between mice and humans are effectively nil at the desired level of brain activity. And it's harder to transfer results between us and rodents, but these tests have given us a wealth of knowledge, including uh, brain function during memory formation and subsequently deletion. In 2005, one study found that medical surgical patients given cortisol during their hospital stays experienced less frequent causes of or cases rather, I'm sorry, of PTSD due to the way cortisol blocks the brain's ability to access memories of fear. Now, this is not uh, a good and reliable, safe way to prevent memory formation. We've talked many times about the negative health consequences of cortisol. Now, earlier this year, scientists discovered that a certain chemical, right now only known by SR8993, may have effects on humans based on mice research. This chemical pushes one but not all of the molecular buttons that control the brain's response to certain natural opioids, um, as well as synthetic ones like morphine and oxycodone. At first glance, one might infer the main mechanism by which morphine is working is pain reduction, but it could also be affecting learning. Now, <clears throat> the scientists do feel that looking at mice behavior 
would be a reliable correlation to how humans respond. And after looking at what genes are activated in the mice brains when they were exposed to stress, scientists introduced some of them to this SR8993. And then the, the mice had fear memory consolidation that was impaired. In other words, they were less able to remember the traumatic experience as a result of this chemical. Now, the, the chemical works mostly in the amygdala, the region of the brain responsible for fear formation. And uh, this technique has a lot of promise, but obviously a lot more testing has to be done to see if we could apply this to humans where it would relieve people with severe trauma for being tortured by memories of it for the rest of their lives. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to this information that I enjoyed bringing to you and that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.